Good morning. You're listening to the Jefferson Exchange. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for joining us. The exchange starts today with the debrief where JPR reporters discuss the stories they've been working on this week, including low water levels in the Shasta River and the removal of dams on the Klamath River. I'm here with reporters Jane Vaughn and Justin Higginbottom. Good morning. Hello. Good morning. Um, so we're going to start off the debrief with a conversation between our colleagues Lovecross and Brian Bull at KLCC. It's about the holiday farm fire and a federal lawsuit against electric utilities that are accused of being negligent when it comes to reducing wildfire risk. From KLCC News in Eugene, I'm Love Cross. The holiday farm fire of 2020 was just part of what became Oregon's worst wildfire season on record that year. Now, a federal lawsuit filed last week in Oregon's U.S. District Court points the finger of accountability at several regional utilities, particularly the Bonneville Power Administration, or BPA. KLCC's Brian Bull has covered the holiday farm fire extensively. He joins us in studio to discuss this lawsuit. Hi, Brian. Hey, love. Well, let's quickly refresh what this wildfire did to the Mackenzie River Corridor on Labor Day 2020. Sure. An anticipated east wind event hit the region. Gusts between 40 to 60 miles per hour were recorded at a time when the region was very hot and dry. And what had been a leisurely holiday with outdoor recreation and cookouts turned into a frantic nightmare with the holiday farm fire burning quickly through the valley, decimating the community of Blue River and damaging other towns. People who fled described it like driving through a furnace, with many escaping into Springfield on the rims of their tires. The fire had melted away the rubber. That's just devastating. Over 173,000 acres burned, with more than 500 structures destroyed, including many homes. But amazingly, only one person, a Vita man, died. So what's the gist of this lawsuit, Brian? Two law firms in Oregon and two in California are collectively representing over 200 claimants affected by the Holiday Farm Fire. They say the claimants suffered harm to their physical and emotional well-being, as well as diminished market value to their properties. The suit also includes two dozen trusts and nearly 20 businesses like Ike's Pizza, the Riverside Inn Restaurant, Mackenzie Mist, and the Mackenzie River Mountain Resort. And as I understand it, according to documents you've received, the attorneys are seeking damages of $232 million? Yes. And while EWEB and Lane County Electric Co-op are listed as defendants, the real impetus of the suit is against BPA, which attorneys accuse of being negligent in preventing risk and harm on a number of counts. This ranges from not removing so-called danger trees from power infrastructure to not properly managing the transmission of electrical power during the conditions leading to the formation of the Holiday Farm Fire. One attorney, Alex Robertson, claims that BPA knew of an outage during the late afternoon of Labor Day 2020, but held off on patrolling the site, which would have revealed the collapse of a large pine tree. The allegations against the other two utilities are mostly about failure to taking steps to reduce the dangers of power lines and equipment during a high wind and red flag event, including circuit breakers. Okay, so have the utilities responded to these allegations? I reached out to all three, and so far only eWeb has responded by saying it doesn't comment on pending litigation. It's not unusual for organizations to decline to comment on an active lawsuit. Mm-hmm. It, it seems that this case is significant, not only because it's a federal lawsuit, but because it directly accuses a federally operated utility of negligence. Correct, love. A similar suit had been filed in Lane County Circuit Court, but attorneys for the claimants say documents gained through a records request last June established accountability with BPA, so it could move to the federal level. In the complaint, those attorneys say BPA's conduct showed, quote, 
a willful, wanton, and reckless disregard of a foreseeable and substantial risk of harm to properties. And this case isn't just about property. The complaint talks of emotional and physical harm to claimants. One is Scott Wright, who told me he sustained permanent damage while overcome of smoke during the Holiday Farm fire. Smoke damage to my lungs is bad enough. I had to do everything I could with an arm that had surgery on it, try to carry my wife out to the car, take care of the animals, get them in the truck. It took five days to even get to an emergency room. And this isn't the end of the legal actions, I understand? The very same day this lawsuit was filed, another one on behalf of nearly 60 insurance companies was also filed against the same utilities. And a lawyer with a firm based in San Diego has confirmed with me that they're working on a legal complaint of their own, which sounds like it'll mirror the one with those 20 dozen claimants. That's on top of a complaint the same firm filed last September in the Court of Federal Claims, which BPA has until February 12th to respond to. All right. Well, thanks so much for your work, Brian, on this new development. You're welcome, love. That's KLCC's Brian Bull on a new federal lawsuit accusing several regional utilities, including BPA, of negligence. Attorneys are pressing for a jury trial. We'll have more in the months ahead. This is KLCC. Okay, we're back and we're going to turn to JPR reporter Justin Higginbottom. Uh, Justin, you reported this week on a proposal to guarantee the Shasta River has enough water for a healthy salmon habitat. What's the situation with that river? Yeah, so uh, the Shasta River, it's in Northern California, and it's a pretty big tributary to the Klamath River. Um, Historically, it's had a lot of salmon. It's actually been one of the more productive Chinook habitats in the Klamath River Basin, but it's suffered from low levels uh, for a while. Basically, since the 30s, for most years, during the summer months, it's been below what California says is healthy for salmon. Um, And, you know, when the levels get too low in the river, the water warms up, fish can't travel freely, oxygen levels fall, so uh, it's all around bad for fish. So what's causing these low levels in the river? Drought, that's played a pretty big role, uh, but also people taking water out of the river. Um, mining businesses historically used to pump water from, from the Shasta River, but now it's, it's mostly agriculture and ranching. So farmers use the rivers to irrigate their fields, to water hay fields that feed cattle, and to fill stock ponds. Um, and during years of especially a hard drought, the California Water Board has taken actions to stop this. They've actually set emergency flow re- requirements for the river. Uh, The flow of the river is measured in cubic feet per second, and basically if that measurement drops below a certain amount, then no one is allowed to access its water. Okay. And so how has that impacted the people who rely on the river? It's hurt. Um, Ranchers and farmers have been put in pretty hard positions before because of that. Um, A couple years ago, some of them even ignored an order uh, to, to stop pumping from the river, and uh, they kept pumping for a short time. Um, They say that that was to save their businesses, and they were fined for that. But the emergency orders uh, do work when businesses stopped pumping from the river, the flow of the river increased. So um, you mentioned this proposal at the beginning. So what does this proposal intend to do? So it's from, it comes from several conservation groups in the region, and they filed a petition to California's Water Board. Um, that petition asks the board to set a permanent flow requirement. Um, so instead of these emergency orders, the board would decide on a number, and if the flow of the river dropped below that number, then people wouldn't be able to use its water. 
Okay. So um, what can we expect moving forward with this process? So already this year, the Water Board has announced uh, they're readopting an emergency minimum flow requirement, but conservation groups are expecting the board to consider their petition within a month about, um, and if the board decides on a permanent flow requirement, then they'd still need to choose what number uh, that would be. Okay. Thanks, Justin. Thanks. All right, Eric, we're going to turn to you from the the Shasta River to the Klamath River. And uh, you covered a development this week in this big, long saga in the removal of the the dams on the Klamath River. You've been covering this over the past year. But what happened this week? Yeah, uh, that's right. So this week, there was sort of the latest iteration in this long, uh, like you said, saga of dam removal on the Klamath. Um, This week, a hole was blasted in the fourth dam uh, in the Lower Klamath Project, which is the four dams that are being taken out. Um, the dam in question was called Copco Number no. One. It's the last dam in this group of dams. Um, it's kind of in the middle of the physical dams that still exist. Between there's one called Iron Gate and one called J.C. Boyle, and Copco Number no. One's in the middle of those. And on Tuesday, construction crews blasted a big hole in the bottom of it, um, and so. Uh, you could see, I, I only was able to see it by the live stream of the video from the event, but you could see this, you know, explosion and this like plume of brown water coming out of the dam, um, and just the river level rising pretty significantly. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I think we have the video on our, on our website, which I've watched and you can just see this little explosion and spurt and then (laughs) there it goes. So what does this step in particular mean in terms of the overall project to remove these dams from the river? Yeah. So there's been a lot of activity over the last month. People are probably getting maybe sick of hearing about the dam stuff, but, uh, but basically the Klamath river is now flowing through, um, all four dams. There's three physical dams that are still there. There's one that's been removed. And so the Klamath River is now flowing through um, these dams. Uh, The other two were breached last month. That was the ones that I mentioned, Iron Gate and J.C. Boyle. And then uh, there's another, the smallest of the four, Cop Code Number 2, was taken out in September. Um, So there's really large reservoirs behind these three dams. Um, they're so big that uh, they expect water to keep draining out of the reservoirs for three weeks. So it's going to be a really slow process. Even even with this big explosion and all this water rushing out, um, you're basically draining three lakes, which is a pretty big yeah. project. Yeah, that's that's a lot of water. It takes a while. So as you said, there's been buildup about this project literally for decades. So what does the river actually look like right now? Um, so you can see there's a mud flat that's starting to appear around where these former reservoirs uh, uh, were and still are, I guess, to some degree. Um, So uh, with Copco Dam, uh, Copco Lake was the reservoir behind that. That one is starting to drain. Um, It's going to kind of vary with the rain. We're getting some precipitation right now, so some of the reservoirs might fill up a little bit, but um, they're going to continue to drain in the coming weeks. Construction crews are actually uh, have big hoses around some parts of the lake where they're like spraying fire hoses to blast the sediment that's accumulated Mm. on the edges of these reservoirs off to try to, they're calling it mobilizing the sediment because you imagine like a hundred years of this stuff that's built up behind the dams and they want to flush it out along with the lakes as they're draining. Um, So that's just kind of a, a quirky element of this 
uh, project. And then um, you can see the historic channel of the Klamath River that's starting to appear uh, in the case of Copco Dam. Uh, it was built in 1918, so that river has basically been blocked off for a century or more than a century. And you can see it starting to appear um, from the people that I've talked to who are working on the project, they've said that you can start to see the tributaries that flow into the river start to appear. That's a big uh, thing for, you know, restoring the habitat for the endangered fish uh, that, or the threatened fish that um, hopefully will come up the river. Yeah, that's really amazing. So now we have just three dams with big holes in them. So what's going to happen next? That's right. Yeah. So there's three dams that all have holes in them. And so the river is flowing through those holes. Um, the immediate next step is revegetation. So you imagine these reservoirs are draining. There's all this mud and dirt and sediment and soil that's been exposed. Um, and uh, I think there's been a lot of attention about just the you know the significance of dam removal here on the on this on the Klamath River, but it's also a massive uh, environmental restoration project. So all these crews with an organization called Resource Environmental Solutions um, is uh, doing a massive replanting project. I think we did a story about how there was something like. 10 billion native seeds that had been propagated for this effort. So they're trying to put all these native plants back into this area. Um, and that's sort of the first step um, to make sure uh, non-native species don't come in. And then once the reservoirs are drained, they're going to actually start the de deconstruction of the dams themselves. And that's uh, planned for the spring. And then that's all going to take place throughout the rest of the year. Cool. Thanks, Eric. Yeah. So Jane, uh, uh, turning back to you, um, this week you covered some developments at the Jackson County Expo here in the Rogue Valley. Um, what happened there? Yeah, so the, the Jackson County Expo is in, in Central Point, and it's sort of a big, you know, event venue. You can can rent it, and they hold events there. And they announced recently that the Rogue Music Festival was canceled for this year, which is a major music festival. Last year was the first time it was held. It was this two-day event in June. Uh, it had performers like Eric Church and Carrie Underwood, so it's a pretty big deal. Mm. Um, officials from the Expo say it was a big success from a customer perspective, but there just weren't enough people who attended to make up for the huge cost. And so last year, it was the festival's first year, and it lost $2.2 million. Wow. Um, so give us some background. Why was it canceled this year? Presumably um, the Yeah, cost. financial reasons. Um, and also, you know, they say they don't have enough time to make it happen this year um, to take all, you know, plan all those contracts. Um, the expo is an enterprise fund, so it has to earn the money it spends, and that's mostly by renting out the venue and holding these events. Uh, it does receive from money from the county's government funds because it's owned by Jackson County. So it now has a deficit. The Expo has a deficit of over half a million dollars from this single event. They did have some money in the bank beforehand, so they're not entirely in the hole, but they are in the hole over half a million dollars. Um, so yeah, you know, the Expo is still running. They do have some events coming this year. Um, and so they're still optimistic about the, the future of the Expo. And they say they might have the Rogue Music Festival again next year. They're in talks about that. So we'll just have to see. Okay. Thanks, Jane. That's going to do it for the debrief this week. Thanks for listening. You can reach the newsroom with comments about our coverage and suggestions for things that we should cover more in the future uh, on our news tip line, which is on our website. Um, you can find this program and others at jeffexchange.org. 